series on mission on the margins as we look at your word, the one that Peter wrote. We ask that you would help us to grasp it, understand it and apply it to our hearts. Come Holy Spirit, take my words, my preparation and, and may they live, Lord. May they, they sing, not because of, of my preaching, but because of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. Come Lord now and just Exalt this word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever seen these two words before? Oxymoron and paradox. I confess I don't really understand the definitions of them, but uh, it would seem that an oxymoron... is what happens when two contradictory words come together in one phrase. Have we got that? So it's when two words come together. For example, pretty ugly. Yeah? Found missing. Say it. Clearly confused. Jumbo shrimp. Get, you're getting the idea. Living dead. Hell's angels. Oh, I like this one. Hospital food. <laughs> I like this one even better. Military intelligence. <laughs> oh, but I think this is the best one. Microsoft works. <laughs> now there are two words in this verse that we're going to sort of zoom in on this verse and verse 7, that almost look like they are an oxymoron. But they're more like a paradox, actually. And we'll look more, which is a, a paradox, which is a contradictory statement, a bit similar. But when um, examined and investigated, proves to be founded on truth. So that's a paradox. But it's kind of like, Rejoice and trials? I mean, they don't seem to go together, do they? I mean, how often would you say rejoice in your trials? I mean, I was preparing this fairly late in the week and I bumped into two people who were going through different trials, difficult trials. And I have to say, I found it personally very difficult because it was like in my head not to say this right off the top of my head, say, well, you just need to rejoice in your trials. It wouldn't have, you know, been really very helpful. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, whoa, rejoice in your trials? What, what does that mean? What, what can that possibly, how on earth could that possibly, and Peter seems to be saying this to these people. So I, it, it's not glib, but I believe when we examine it in more depth, we will see that there is some truth in this paradox of rejoicing in our trials. Well, Peter says, all kinds of trials. That's what he he begins by saying, doesn't he? All kinds of trials. What's all kinds of trials? 
What does he mean? Well, most commentators are agreed that the Christians of this time that he was writing to were unlikely facing um, painful persecution. But they were being put on the margins. It was almost like the, the Romans had expelled them to refugee camps as far away as they can because they just wanted to get them out of the way, really. But they weren't actually really murdering them. That was under uh, Emperor uh, Claudius, and then it came a bit later when they did uh, get persecuted under Emperor Nero. But this was kind of the hostility, the trials of alienation, marginalization, and feeling isolated. What I've noticed about trials, when it says all kinds of trials, I don't think one size fits all. I mean, there are different kinds of trials. In fact, one translation just says all shades of trials. I quite like that. They're actually all shades of, of trials that he he is referring to here. And some shades merge into others. I guess they fall into three categories, roughly, anyway. Physical, mental, emotional, and and spiritual. And that's just some of the things. I mean, physical trials, you know, cancer, strokes, heart attacks, birth defects, car accidents. And people experienced physical trials in the Bible. When you look at Job... He had a, a kind of deteriorating, debilitating, long-term skin condition. And then when we look at Paul, the apostle, he had something that was a thorn in the flesh. It, most commentators think it may well have been a, a, an eye disease that he was losing his sight. Uh, that's a possibility. Physical trials are there in the Bible, but also... Mental, emotional trials are there. I mean, if you look at the uh, Psalms, particularly Psalm 42, we find David talking about the trials that he faced that were causing him to weep. He says in Psalm 42, I make my own bed to swim in my own tears. There's a kind of a sense in which it's a a watery grave that he feels. And you, you really do get that sense when you read that Psalm. Of, of a man who was experiencing something of depression. And then we have Elijah, again, a man who, who struggled with depression at the end of his ministry, particularly. You know, after all the great things that God had done through him, you know, after seeing the prophets of Baal kind of embarrassed, obliterated as a result of the fire coming down um, from heaven, and, and we, we see... We see Elijah depressed, and we see people like Jonah as well. I mean, he was, he was depressed at the beginning when he was told to go to Nineveh, and then he sees them repent, but then he ends up depressed. So depression is also, it seems, a trial that can come upon many Christians, many believers, many of God's people. Then there are spiritual trials that happen. You know, when we struggle sometimes with our own guilt, you ever done that? You felt really like, I wish I hadn't done that. But the guilt, it just remains and you prayed, but you still feel you've got guilt. And maybe if it's not that, it's doubt. Sometimes you, you think, oh yeah, I really believe, I really can believe. But then you look, well, is there really a miracles? Is Jesus really alive? 
Is it really? And I mean, I guess John the Baptist is a great example of this. Because, I mean, John the Baptist, wow, you couldn't get much better, could you? I mean, here he is, cousin of Jesus, presenting the, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. You think, here's a man who doesn't have any doubts. And what we find is that he's in prison. It says he, was, he sent a message to find out if Jesus was really the Messiah. <laughs> he, he thought that maybe there should be more. So he says, are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? Isn't John the Baptist asking questions about Jesus? So there's all kinds of trials. I mean, you know, as I say, there may be other kinds of trials as well. Physical, emotional, spiritual trials. But sometimes there will be trials in your life. So it seems odd then. You, you, you have this word in this, you greatly rejoice. Though Now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. Grief. The Greek word there is lupio. Lupio. It means a very heavy, troublesome grief that can come upon us sometimes. And many of us, uh, you know, to be honest, many of us in the West, particularly in my own culture, would, would probably anesthetize grief. They would kind of like try and say, we shouldn't really grieve. We should, it's not right to grieve. And that's not good. In ancient times, when the Hebrew people lost somebody, you know, they would even have a period of grief that lasted 30 days. The Egyptians, apparently, their period of grief lasted 70 days. Whereas we would maybe think, well, a a week is, is long enough to really grieve over somebody or a month. But no, it would seem that there is, in, in fact, uh, a, a grieving period. But again, I would suggest that grief does not, is not the same everywhere. You know, there is a, a kind of a, a different response to grief. There's that shock, and then there's that kind of uh, adjustment, readjustment, and, and there's a kind of denial, and there's all sorts of stages of grief. And I guess the that will happen in different people. But no one size of grief fits all. There's a big difference, isn't there? I mean, when when somebody loses somebody that they've been together with for 50 years, that's that's different, isn't it, when when you leave young children behind. Or the grief that... uh, when you've had a good relationship with somebody and everything's been fine, or the grief that follows when you've got guilt because of something you said or wish you'd said or whatever. So grief is, is different. I think I just want to make that point. It's very different for different people. We can't really just categorize it and say grief. So it's a bit like all these things. It's different, all kinds of trials. I mean, Mary and Martha is another example Mary was much quieter, but Martha was really quite loud when Jesus came and was really shouting about Jesus, you know, our brother has died, etc., and really shouting. And Jesus, you think, well, Jesus, well, he must have been quiet in his grief. No. It says Jesus wept. And he must have wept loudly for people to have heard and seen that for them to write it. 
So let's not think grief is an abnormal thing. It's a normal thing. And I think that's important to, to think when we come to looking at this text. So I need to get some of these things over. The other thing about this verse is it says, in all this, verse 6, we're looking again. In all these things, it says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. What is in all this being referred to? What is this, in all these things referred to? It's the verses before. It has to be the verses before. And I want to suggest that there are verses 1 to 5 there where Peter has crammed in a huge amount of theology. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, the inheritance kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We had this last Sunday. <clears throat> Those of us who, who were here, are three things that were, were there that Peter begins with, that he packs in in a very short space about the resurrection that brings hope, an inheritance that gives us also hope for the future, and also a power in weakness that kind of can protect us by the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, these are, these are the kind of, the, the, the things that are being promised to us. So in all this is not a little mantra, well, in all this it will all be all right. No, he's saying, look, in all this, look previously to what I've just been saying to you. Resurrection, eternal inheritance, a body uh, power for you right now, bodyguard. These are eternal, re, eternal things that are being suggested to those who would go through suffering. And so he's not saying, forget your trials. He's saying, in all this, you may have trials, but these are the things that you need to be thinking about in order to help you to rejoice. Okay, so he's saying rejoice, and he's referring them to those three things before, and he's telling these believers now that you will have trials. So you think, well, rejoice in it. Well, okay, hard, but what's the alternative? What's the alternative? I want to ask, what is the alternative for this? Well, we take different religions. First of all, there was a philosophy that was going around when Peter was writing this letter that was called Stoicism. Stoicism. It was a kind of a, an idea that people were teaching that the cosmos was an impersonal, universal logos that determines all things. And there is nothing that you can do or will ever do in order to change anything about your suffering. Whatever. So they were saying, don't give in to your feelings. That's, you know, sometimes we say it today, don't we? Be stoic about it, you know? It's kind of like, don't, don't, don't express your feelings about it. Stoic, stoicism. And that was, that was the kind of philosophy of the time. But that has crept into different religions even today. You have Buddhism, for example, that teaches um, that suffering is an illusion. 
And it requires that if you want to work through suffering, you, you detach yourself from suffering, and then you will get enlightenment. That's what Buddhism teaches about suffering. Or there's karma, which is also kind of prevalent through the uh, Asian religions, Hinduism and others. And uh, that, that more or less says that if you endure suffering in this life well, and you do it nobly, it will kind of lead to a better life in the future. That's karma. It's sort of like, oh, okay, um, I need to do well here so I don't come back as a, as a sort of a, an insect in the next life or whatever. So it's kind of experience suffering. Karma, that's another alternative. If you want that one, okay. Or Islam, which teaches really that uh, suffering is actually, can be your fate. It's the will of Allah. You need to kind of just express the fact that you know, it's fatalistic. This is the will of Allah. It's happened. That's the way it is. And you need to submit. That's what Islam means is submission uh, to Allah. And then there's fatalism. There's kind of like other religions that are connected with a, like a more Zoroastrianism, which is saying that there's a dualistic thing in the universe. There's the forces of, of good and the forces of evil. And it's a bit like Star Wars. So if, if somehow the forces of good are beating the forces of evil, there'll be less suffering. But if the forces of evil are there, then there'll be more suffering. Do you get it? So it's kind of like, that's what these different religions effectively teach. So there's different approaches to that. What about our society? I've just talked about those, but what about in us? What's prevalent in our society today? Well, religion isn't so prevalent. 21st century atheism and secular humanism sees suffering and trials as an unmitigated, unmitigated curse. I was reading a bit from Richard Dawkins. This is what he writes. Listen to this. We are infantile if we look to any spiritual resource to find purpose or meaning in the face of suffering. In short, suffering doesn't mean anything at all. It's an evil hiccup, an empty, pointless, futile desert of meaningless and insignificance. Well, if you're an atheist, it probably is. It's pointless. And you'd best think of it as an evil hiccup. So what's the alternatives? Illusion, detachment, enlightenment. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think all of them have a certain merit to them. I'm not knocking them all. I'm just saying that they all exist and have merit to them. But this is what I want to tell you this morning, that Christianity has the best way to look at suffering, even though it's still difficult, even though it's still, I can't fully get my mind around it, it still has an awful lot. And that's because we worship one who I would describe as the crucified God. You see, none of the other religions have a God who has experienced suffering. Only Christianity claims that Jesus died on the cross, experienced suffering as God. Only God the Father experienced bereavement on the cross. Only God the Spirit experienced that separation as it all kind of must have felt on that Good Friday. 
This is, this is what our, our, our approach should be as we think about the awfulness of trials and suffering in our life. I came across this poem. I do like poems. And I found this one really enlightening. It's by a 19th century poet who's an atheist. His name was Edward Shilito, and he became a Christian when he saw the uniqueness of Christianity. He wrote it shortly after the First World War. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak and not a god has wounds but thou alone powerful isn't it that our god has wounds that our god has experienced trials suffering pain actually our god has experienced one pain that none of you will ever have to face and that is abandonment here and now He says, I promise you, I will be with you now and forevermore, always. That's a a promise he will keep. But of course, our Lord Jesus experienced that abandonment when he said, my God, my God, why why am I forsaken? Because of our sin that was upon him, our God. That means he must love us a lot, doesn't it? It means he must love us a lot to go through that. Not a God has wounds, but thou alone. So, I ask this question carefully. Can our trials ever help us? Can our trials ever help us? See, actually, many 21st century Christians think God made a big mistake when he created trials. I mean, Philip Yancey says, if you pinned them against the wall in the dark... In a secret moment, many Christians would probably admit that pain was possibly God's one mistake. He really should have worked a little bit harder and invented a much better way of coping with the world's dangers. But I I want to suggest that looking at this book, 1 Peter, there is a sense in which God is actually still in the trials. In a little while, he says. That implies to me... That there are trials that he knows about, he's permitted, he might have even sent, but they are for a little while. They are for a little while. And that seems to suggest to me a God who is in control and later permits. And when we look at 1 Peter, let me say, if you, if you don't think that trials are a normal part of the Christian life, then don't bother reading the rest of 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter 3.17 says it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Or 1 Peter 4 verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And then I I read this uh, this morning when when the reading was coming and flicked over the page and I I noticed another verse here. Um, Verse 16 of chapter 4. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. See, this, it gets harder in 1 Peter. It doesn't get easier. It doesn't say, like many Christians, they have this kind of theology now. I've seen it on the TV sometimes. 
that it's never right for us to have any kind of suffering or pain. I've watched some evangelists say that. Well, I'm not convinced by that. I am not convinced by that. I think that's part of our culture that wants to remove pain. But the reality is that God is a God who still permits trials, as he did to his servant Job, as he did to Peter, as he did to Paul. He still sends trials or allows them to happen. So can they correct us? Can they do anything for us? The first, very quickly, five things that they can do. First of all, they can correct us. C.S. Lewis eloquently said, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. I like that. And David in Psalm 119 said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So sometimes trials can actually correct us, correct our behavior. Secondly, trials can humble us. Paul the Apostle Paul had these amazing visions, didn't he, and revelations. I mean, I'd love to know what he saw when he says, I went into the third heaven. What did he see? I don't know. He doesn't describe it. It sounds pretty amazing. But he says, you know, in order that I shouldn't be exalted above measure, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan was given to me to torment me. For three times I asked the Lord to remove it, and he said, my grace is sufficient to you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes it can humble us. We need to be humble. We recognize that, that it, we, we are really nothing without God. And only trials can sometimes humble us. Or they can sometimes. And they can produce patience. I remember learning this verse as a young person or a child. The trial of your faith worketh patience. I don't know, it must have been a memory verse that I was given. <coughs> as I, I, I say it in the authorised. The trials of your faith worketh patience from James. I don't know if you've ever prayed for patience. Lord, give me patience. I mean, no. I mean, I pray for it all the time, especially if I'm in hospital or with a doctor. Pray, pray for patience now. I want it. But you see, sometimes God might well say, okay, I'm going to send a storm. I'm going to send a trial to help you to grow your patience. Your life is more than just the now. There is more to come. And maybe you need to learn patience. Trials can equip us, fourthly. They can equip us. The God of all comfort comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort one another. That's amazing, isn't it? To comfort those in trouble with the comfort that we have received from God. Now, can I just put a a bit of warning on this? Your trial may not comfort another person. So when a person says, I'm going through this, if you then say, oh yes, I know exactly what that's like, that will not help you. That will not help them. But I I have noticed that the people who have experienced something more of the pain that, that I've suffered, they, 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 and they come over empathically, like they can feel it better because of it. Those people help. And I want to be one of those. And so, dare I want to pray that I'm like that? Because maybe God would say, in that case, I need to send you a trial. Do, do you see? And I don't really want more trials. But if God wants to make me more like Jesus, then maybe I should. You see, I, I, I hope that God is not looking at me like he looks at my toaster. 
Now, I'll tell you why I I say this. Because I have never worked out on a toaster why there is one of those buttons that when you turn it up full, it turns my toast to worse than that. Have you got one of those? Have you ever turned up the toaster full? Have you? Why? I can't see any point in it. Nobody wants a button, do they, that turns up a toaster right to the full. It's always like number two, isn't it, or number three that you put it on, surely. I I kind of find it funny, but I think, you know, it keeps me up at night sometimes thinking about this. Why on earth has anybody designed a toaster that goes up to ten, you know? It seems crazy. But, you know... I'm glad that I have a God that doesn't look at me in a toaster and says, I'm going to turn it right up to 10. <laughs> See, Warren Wearsby said, if God puts you in the furnace, his eye is on the clock and his hand is on the thermostat. I like that. And Job, I mean, he'd suffered an awful lot in his life, says... He knows the way that I take. God knows the way that I take. God knows what I have to go through. And when he has tested me, I will come forth like gold. Now that is the illustration that Peter then goes on in verse 7 to talk about. He says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith is of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's that picture of an ancient goldsmith heating up a furnace with gold. It's almost like God is saying, look, you are to me gold. I think, really? Am I that precious to you? Yes, you are precious. That's the first thing you should grasp this morning. If the rest of it doesn't work, take that thought alone you are precious but often when the trials happen uh, when you're melting gold all the muck comes to the surface doesn't it it kind of comes up to the front and then the goldsmith takes the muck and he takes it off the top and he looks at it and that's how they make gold make it purer and purer heat it up gently a bit more until it's clearer and you know I just have this feeling that God looks at us and he says, okay, can I see my face in that gold? You know, when he sees Jesus in that gold, he says, this is is my precious daughter, this is my precious son. Unfortunately, we have different attitudes to things when we're heated up I close with this really when I when I put on the gas I've got three things that I like three of my favourite things here carrots, eggs and coffee now sometimes when I get the furnace of God's of of the heat underneath not God when I I put the gas on (laughs) and I heat up the carrots and I leave them on too long what happens to the carrots Have you ever had soggy carrots? Are they nice? Not really, are they? They get soggier and soggier. They're horrible. I I like them a little bit crisp, not too crisp, but just about right. Anybody who's cooking for the harvest supper, I'm just letting you know, okay? Uh, But but when they're soggy, they're not very nice. Sometimes when I feel the, the heat of trials, 
I go all soft and oh, it's just all, you know. I don't, I, I don't lose, I lose my flavour, shall I say. I don't really want to be a blessing to anybody else. I've just got this trial. I don't want to care about anybody else. I've got my own trials. Thank you very much. That's me. Sometimes I'm more like the eggs. When I boil them up, I ask Anne, how many minutes do I put them on? And she says, 15 minutes. And I turn them on and they're hard-boiled. I'm sure it should be less, Anne. I'm sure it should be less. You know what I mean? I, but they, they come out really hard, you know, and the shells are like, you know, you knock the shells and they're solid. It's amazing. You can't break them that easily when they're hard-boiled, you know. You become like this hardened thing, you know. And sometimes when we have trials, that's how we become. We become hard, hard to everybody else because they're really bad. They're really like a trial, you know. It, it, it's just... I don't want them personally. I just, oh, I've gone through enough trials and, and if anybody says anything to me, I'm going to give them a mouthful. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's, the, that's the egg. But when it comes to coffee, that's what I want to be like. Every morning, just to let you know, my, one of my habits is I go downstairs and I put on this coffee jug. Brilliant. Whoever designed this, genius. Absolute Genius. So take the bottom off. Have you ever made coffee in one of these pots? Anybody? Or are you all using Nescafe now? Yeah. Dear, dear. Done. It's rubbish. And don't use, by the way, don't use those uh, Nespresso machines. Get rid of them. Because they, they're cluttering up the planet with little plastic things uh, that we need to chuck away. So when it breaks, throw it away. That's my opinion. Anyway, but here we are. But buy one of these. That's the picture I want to leave you with today. Buy one of these. They're great. What you do is you put the water in the bottom part, just in case you've never done one of these things, and then there's a middle bit that comes out, and you put your coffee in there. Yeah? Then you screw it on, and then you put it on the pot, on the, on the gas. And in about four or five minutes, it starts to bubble up. There's nothing in the top. Sometimes you have a little look. Oh, there's nothing there. And then suddenly, it's amazing. But it's like... This beautiful aroma comes out. Isn't it? It's fantastic. It smells great. Everybody walking into my house in the morning must think, oh, what a lovely, lovely smell coming from the kitchen there. You know, it's just lovely. It permeates. What is amazing is that the coffee actually changes the, the, the taste of the water coming through. The, the water comes through like that. And it comes at the top. It's amazing. I think this is, this, is, this is brilliant. But that is what God wants us to be like when, it's, when we come to suffering. We are there maybe to experience the heat, but to change the flavour of things around. Do you get that? With a God who actually knows what it's like to suffer. Now that is such a profound picture of the crucified God. This is such a profound picture of the disciple who goes through suffering. And you will see, as we look at 1 Peter, we will see that this is the pattern that God has for peoples who are doing mission on the margins, like many of us. We need to have that picture of being that coffee. If if Peter had had coffee, he would have used that illustration. But I, I swear, it is so good, the thinking of purifying 
and changing the taste of that which surrounds us. We are like gold. And God looks at us and sees his face inside us. May he help us then to be like the coffee. May he one day help us to stop telling God how big the storm is. Maybe we should tell the storm how big God is. Yeah? That he is the one that can actually change the, the situation. Maybe we are the ones now who have to, to at least recognize that the loving God is with us and partly, uh, partly permitting the, 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 the pain of the suffering to correct us, to humble us, to make us more patient, to equip us, to be more empathic and to above all reflect the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for us. May God help us as we ponder these things in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. So we come around this table now, Lord, which is a fantastic picture of your suffering for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to really grasp the true doctrines of the blood and the bread that we might really see something of how much you love us in this. Let's sing this song as we come round the